It's Monday, April 30th. This is Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio from Motley Fool Asset Management, Bill Barker. Happy Merger Monday. Oh, thank you. I like it when Wall Street tropes live up to their name. I like when Merger Monday happens. It makes it a little easier to decide what we're going to talk about. Yeah, well, there's a long weekend. It wasn't a long weekend this weekend, but it's long enough to everybody to get the lawyers together and iron out some details while the market's closed. So, uh, yeah, you'll see more of this. It's been a lot, a lot of mergers uh, this year. We're going to talk about McDonald's and their latest quarter. And yes, we will get to the weekend box office, which was record breaking. But we have to start with T Mobile and Sprint. T Mobile buying Sprint for $26 billion in stock. It's an all stock deal. The combined company is going to stick with the T Mobile name. And more importantly, for entertainment purposes, John Ledger, the CEO of T-Mobile will remain as CEO of this new entity. Uh, this new entity, I say that as though it's a done deal. And yet, when you look at what's happening to shares of both T-Mobile and Sprint, both of which are down right now, for all the temptation to say, hey, the third time's a charm, they're actually going to make this work, right now, Wall Street is acting as though this deal is not going to happen. Yeah, well, this has been a long time in coming. There have been a lot of uh, variations over the years on it, going back to 2014 when they first discussed it and proposed it and ultimately dropped it because uh, they were given the indications that it would not be approved. So that was a different administration, 2014, and they got back to talking about it last year, 2017. Uh, that hit some bumps, but today, today in their minds, according to them, it's on. And according to Wall Street, there's nothing that's really changed here. <laughs> I thought that from a messaging standpoint, the folks at T-Mobile and Sprint did a great job of, in their announcement of this deal, laying the groundwork for as smooth a possible a an approval from the U.S. Justice Department as they possibly could in terms of talking about. Competition, what it's going to mean, not just in terms of competition with the leaders in this industry, AT&T and Verizon, but also the wins for consumers. I thought everything was spot on, with one exception, and that is talking about how this was going to create a lot of jobs. And I just thought, come on, come on, guys, please don't act like there aren't going to be layoffs involved in a merger of this size. Please don't act as though there are zero redundancies between the third and fourth largest telecoms in America. Well, the announcement sort of read like a checklist of what you are trying to get in front of this administration to get their approval, citing the taxes being helpful to this deal, the tax cuts, and as you mentioned, jobs. I'll come back to that in a second. Competition with China. It really is looking to. There, there seems to be a very specific audience that you're. Working toward now, whether that audience, that being the top of the administration, really is the deciding vote here, I wouldn't speculate on. But given the jobs, all right, the spin 
the positive spin for the jobs is that they're going to get together and throw a lot of money at the 5G network, and that's where the jobs are. So, your point that this would obviously involve some redundancies is accurate. They're, They're sort of seeing that and raising the, oh, but look at the 5G and how much we're going to we're going to devote to that. And I'm not a tech person, but as I understand it, 5G, that's one better than 4G, right? It's 25% better than 4G. Now I'm interested. I wasn't before, but now I am. Can we talk about these two CEOs for a second? Marcelo Claré, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, who is the CEO of Sprint, and John Ledger from T-Mobile. I'll give you a minute to think about this in terms of animosity between CEOs. Because if you didn't know anything about these two and their history going at one another, and you just watch them on the set of CNBC's uh, uh, whatever is that show? Squawk Box, not Squawk Box, a Squawk on the Street. There we go. Um, if you just saw them sitting on the set with Jim Cramer and Carl Quintanilla, you'd think, "Oh my goodness, these these old pals have gotten their businesses together. Isn't this great?" And you would have no idea that the names they have called each other in the past, um, Claret calling John Ledger a con artist, um, Ledger dismissing Claret and saying, you know, go ahead and, and I'm quoting here, stay in the shallow end of the pool. You don't want to come in the deep end where the big boys are. I mean, just really getting personal with one another. But I suppose, in the hopes that this deal gets approved, money solves everything. There's a price at which Claret says, "All right, sure, we'll sell this company, and you can be the CEO." Yeah, everybody has their price, and this the price today seems to be 146 billion. The combined company would have when you include all the debt, depending on where the stock price is in any particular moment, and right. They've they've called each other names, but for the right amount of money, uh, they'll stop calling each other names and and be friends. And that's not too dissimilar from plenty of things that we've seen in the political world lately. It's true. Although I I, I was spending a little bit of time trying to think of the last time in the business world we saw. CEOs who just flat out didn't like each other, or at least the public-facing versions of them didn't like one another. Maybe behind closed doors, there's a little bit more friendliness towards one another. But I mean, we're talking about years of history of these two just openly mocking one another and their overall businesses. Yeah, and CNBC has a page on its site right now that sort of goes through a number of the Twitter. Insults over the years. So, if you want to be entertained, you can look that up. Uh, some of which are not uh, you. You run a tighter ship here. Uh, there are some some words in here you're not allowed to say on on your network here, in uh, in their tweets. Oh, really? And that CNBC is is publishing. We try and run a tight ship around here in terms of our language. Yeah. Unlike some establishments that I can think of, including <laughs> CNBC and other things that made the news over the weekend. Although we did have a recent snafu here, where oh right, yeah, but let's move on. From that. <laughs> um, so at the end of the day, when you look at these stocks, I mean, do do you look at this and think, you know what, the market is speaking? Granted, it's the short term, but the market is speaking loudly and clearly. This deal is not going through. 
Would you be at all tempted to throw down a couple of bucks on shares of Sprint? Just thinking, okay, maybe this doesn't go through, but at some point, someone's going to buy them because the stock's on sale today. Uh, or would you just stay away altogether? I would stay away in terms in terms of investing for uh, you know the discounted cash flow of the company over the long term. It's being controlled by uh, rumor, not rumors. I, there are legitimate concerns about whether this can go through. If you think you've got insight. That goes deeper than the markets on the percentage chance that this goes through. That being the markets discounting, I, I, there's some percent chance that it goes through, but it's less than 50 50 is, is the way the betting looks right now. Uh, why I would have a better uh, read on that than the market after looking at this for a few minutes today, I don't know. Plenty of people will, though. They'll, they'll decide that they think they know what the outcome is going to be. And bet accordingly, but that's what it is. It's a bet. Let's move on to McDonald's and McDonald's shareholders. Congratulations, you're having your best day in over a year. Shares of McDonald's up 5% after first quarter profits came in higher than expected. Their same store sales in the US were, at least in terms of that metric, the shining star of the globe because US comps were a good bit higher than international comps. And I found it interesting that what was really driving that was the larger ticket price. Interesting in the sense that McDonald's really does push the value proposition of their menu. So the fact that they were able to raise comps in the US on a larger ticket order, um, one is interesting and two, good for them. All right. Well, one thing is I'm going to possibly correct you, or at least try to get at the source of your information, because I've got or misinformation. Well, I've got U.S. comps at 2.9 percent and global comps at 5.5. Oh, so, oh I, then I clearly that's misinformation because I saw global comps up barely, not even one percent. But clearly, I misread that. Well, it may be there may have been some currency translation thing, uh, or you may just be wrong. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to. I'm trying to figure it out, or find out whether the data that I'm looking at is wrong, uh, which I hope is not the case. Anyway, 2.9 percent up in the U.S. How good is that? Well, it, it's definitely good. They got a lot of restaurants, and and most of that is um, from inflation on uh, the ticket price. Uh, they would say uh, this is raising prices. Not not that they're getting more traffic. Uh, but that they successfully raised prices. And they raised prices a little bit more, but not a lot more than inflation. So think of, let's give 2.9% around that three. Inflation over the time period has been close to two, still doing a good job raising prices. Um, internationally, they've, they've got uh, some parts of the world are growing uh, 7%, 8% on comps. Again, I don't know if that is. Uh, uh, affected in a large chunk by the currency translation or not, but you know, there are a lot of restaurants they've successfully refranchised a lot. Uh, so if you look at their total numbers, the revenue for the company is not really going up over time. Uh, they're they're getting more profitable by refranchising, and they've got a lower risk model that way. So I figured out my mistake. So you're correct. Uh, and you know how much I hate to say those words out loud. Uh, global same store sales growth five and a half percent. The zero point eight percent number that I saw had to do with global 
uh, guest counts, uh, which uh, which enables uh, a teaching moment. Which is when we're talking about same store sales, there are a couple of ways to get there. One is to get more people through the door. The other is to raise prices and. At least for this latest quarter, McDonald's is doing a little bit better job of effectively raising prices than they are at getting more people through the door. Yes, uh, they are doing basically, I think, flat in terms of traffic in the U.S. and as you say, almost up at one percent in terms of traffic internationally. So that's not a lot. Still, given the number of stores that they've got, one percent traffic. Uh, is good and uh, better than a lot of the other um, companies uh, in the fast food space are doing these days. Interesting that all day breakfast, which was such a big driver when it was first unveiled for the first year or so, uh, in this latest quarter, McDonald's admitted, "Yeah, we're we're dealing with some higher competition on the breakfast front." Uh, and so that's that's something that presumably they will look to work on over the next year or so. Yeah, success invites competition. Everybody is not going to just uh, watch McDonald's succeed wildly at that and not copy them. And uh, there are places. The exception being Chipotle. As we've <laughs> as we've indicated, there there may be now that there's new management, there may be some uh, reconsideration of whether breakfast could be part of their their structure i don't i don't understand why not well and and brian nickel on the new ceo of chipotle on the latest call he did he essentially put the question of breakfast to the side he didn't dismiss it outright but he he basically said there are other things we're going to focus on and we'll revisit that sometime later um, so i i would be surprised if 2 years from now we were sitting here uh, and the chipotle if they hadn't unveiled breakfast. They were not at least in the process of it. I would agree that it is, seems to be an obvious uh, opportunity for them. It seemed that way for years, though, and they've got their reasons, uh, seemingly having to do with the turnover of the ingredients and uh, the transition that issues that they would have going from breakfast to lunch. I don't know. I think they're smart enough to figure that out. Uh, but they need to get people coming in, and that's what they're focusing on: increasing the traffic. And uh, they do have a lot of things uh, to solve on their plate. So I can see not taking on breakfast as well at the moment, given new management and uh, decision to focus. They've got opportunities in advertising there as well. And uh, but getting back to the competition in the all-day breakfast, who who else is doing that? No, nobody else, I think, has gotten the same bang for getting into that. Not so much, but just in terms of those hours, um, I saw one analyst um, talking about Burger King making some strides just in sort of the traditional breakfast hours. Um, as you said, it uh, when they see the success, it invites competition. So, yeah, um, and you know, to go back to Brian Nickel for a second, I. Look, as we've talked about before, it's always been a little mystifying that Chipotle appears to be the only restaurant in America that cannot figure out how to do breakfast and then follow it up with lunch and dinner, mm -hmm. when pretty much every other restaurant, whether it's a national chain or not, has figured out how to do that. That being said, if you're Brian Nickel and you walk in, when it comes to food items, isn't Fixing queso number one on your list isn't it number one through five? Where you just go, my God, what is this? <laughs> if you tried to serve this at Taco Bell where I used to work, you'd be thrown out and arrested. 
I suppose, uh, although you know, one fears what he might do with queso if he follows a Taco Bell script. Uh, it could be, you know, the Doritos flavored queso or something like that. You know what? If they rolled that out, I would be first in line. You would be first, but I'm not sure that. All of Chipotle's audience would would like a Taco Bellization of the Chipotle experience. I'm not saying across the board, but come on, it's queso. Nobody's looking for healthy queso. No one wants healthy queso. The whole when they even when they rolled it out and they were like, "Oh, it doesn't have stabilizers in it." And I just remember thinking, "I don't know what stabilizers are, but I now know that they are a key ingredient of queso because this is terrible." Uh, well, I I haven't tried the queso there. If you you have and, yes. and are appalled by it, uh, appalled is too strong a word. But no, I just it's thought, not. No, I, it's just, not. I just thought, <laughs> nope, this isn't doing it. This is not doing it. Um, quick thanks to uh, Jack Senge, who's a stock advisor member from Florida, who came by uh, on Friday of last week uh, along with. Um, uh, Lee Fry and his wife Lisa, and uh, also stock advisor members, uh, they came and caught our taping of Motley Fool Money on Friday. And Jack was very kind to bring a bottle of Palm Ridge Reserve whiskey. Nice. I was unaware that uh, any place in Central Florida was producing whiskey, but this is a fine-looking bottle that I will be breaking out at some point, uh, some point before Fool Fest. You have not finished it yet. I, I haven't even opened it yet. Oh. But uh, but thank you to Jack for that. Uh, we should uh, real quick mention uh, Walt Disney shares up about two percent this morning, which makes sense when you realize that Avengers: Infinity War set new records for opening weekend box office: two hundred fifty million here in the U.S., six hundred thirty million worldwide. And I haven't seen it. Uh, you haven't seen it, but clearly, plenty of people have. So I'm hoping to get there this week. But but this is just this is just one of those times where you just sort of sit back and go, "Oh right, yeah, there was that time that Bob Iger bought Marvel, <laughs> and whatever he paid, for, whatever they paid for Marvel. I think the number is like four million, four billion, four point four billion, or something like that. But whatever, whatever they paid was just. Maybe it was more than that. I should look that up. That was a good buy. Star Wars was a good buy. Pixar was a good buy. Uh, You know, when they get all those universes together, uh, meeting on the the Disney screen, that'll be awesome. All of them? Like uh, I don't know, The Incredibles versus uh, the Avengers on Tatooine. Okay. That yeah. Or on the Death Star. You're not paying for that. Of course, you're paying for that. I am. Although historically, I think we we know what happens to uh, structures called Death Star. <laughs> they don't end well. No, but these guys all escape. They right. get off before but it blow. Obviously, it's going to blow up. Are, is it safe to say that you are m- more looking forward to the sequel for The Incredibles than you are to see Infinity War? Because you've talked about The Incredibles as uh, a Mount Rushmore Pixar movie. It's one of your all-time favorites, and I see you as someone saying, "Kids, I don't know if you're going to this opening weekend, but I am." Well, I think The Incredibles is one of the, like the top. It's one of the top four or five James Bond movies ever made. <laughs> it's pretty much a Bond movie. Okay, sell me on that. The mountain that the the lair that uh, syndrome is in um, blows up, and and it's all it feels very bondish, you know, getting in there. 
Yeah, there there are some James Bond elements. He certainly has some of the music li- is like any of it hints toward it. Like any of the classic uh, Bond movies, the Bond villain. Uh, first of all, the great Bond movies have really good Bond villains, and that particular villain has plenty of henchmen who who get disposed of. And in the Incredibles, Syndrome has a ton of henchmen who, of course, you never see their faces because they're just wearing helmets, and it's just like, yeah, they're taken out. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to Incredibles and uh, and the Han Solo movie. There's uh, Disney just has such a, this is they've had Black Panther, they've got an Avengers, and I don't know. Avengers was probably the most anticipated movie of the year on their schedule, but uh, Han Solo is up there too. Yes, there's a Han Solo movie. There's uh, Ant Man and the Wasp. That's, that pales, you know. To the uh, Black Panther was uh, highly anticipated. Uh, boy, it's it's amazing what they keep doing. And it's nice if you're a shareholder because it's uh, it's a nice reminder that uh, yeah okay yeah the ESPN stuff isn't firing on all cylinders as we would necessarily like, uh, but this other stuff seems to be working out. Well, the ESPN stuff, and I think that you have I don't want to characterize it incorrectly, but at times it feels feels like you say like ah the ESPN don't pay as much attention to that. Uh, as as you're hearing, because look at everything else that Disney is doing. Um, ESPN is not the the critical point of failure that everybody is afraid of. I and, think, and and having listened recently to uh, Bill Simmons talk about his experience there on the Mark Marin podcast, yeah, have you heard that? Yes. You know, it, it seemed obvious, certainly in retrospect. To him, uh, that they they missed uh, the how big cord cutting was going to be for them, and I, aren't most things obvious in hindsight? I he may have. I'm I'm saying it's obvious in hindsight. I'm not sure that he is saying it was obvious in only in hindsight. Uh, it seems like he he doesn't claim to you know to have superior insight into the business, but it seems like he's. Recounts it as they they didn't see this coming at all. They, they you know like they had to be educated on the words cord cutting, kind of thing. So I, I to your potential mischaracterization, I would say you are half right in terms of of how I have thought about ESPN and what it means for Disney shareholders. I do think that the amount of coverage it has gotten is overblown. I think the 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 more important piece. Is that certainly from the Wall Street standpoint, there was a really good stretch of time where ESPN got an outsized amount of focus, negative focus in terms of investors. And part of that was an unspoken assumption that this is a problem that Disney will never be able to fix. Like that was the part that always sort of mystified me. It wasn't simply this appears to be a problem for the Walt Disney Corporation that they are year over year losing subscribers and year therefore year over year losing tens, if not hundreds, of millions of dollars that they used to have coming through the front door. But the the last part of it was. I don't think they're ever going to fix this, and I always thought that was crazy. That Bob Iger was sort of, you know, as though he was in an ivory tower of sorts and just saying, "Well, that was a nice run while it lasted. I guess there's nothing we can do about it now." And I just thought, no, they're going to try and figure it out. Um, and I think with this streaming app, that it's certainly a really good first step. 
Well, the middle road between those two would be they don't appreciate how big a problem this is. Not not that they're not ever going to be able to fix it, or that they're going to start losing money or something like that. Like they're blindsided by uh, what is going to happen, and they're living in this world of you know expecting this to turn around and it's just going to get worse. And and they don't they don't appreciate it. Now I don't I don't know how much of that is is the case. Um, but they've always been more diversified, and the, the narrative had gotten like Disney is really ESPN with some other stuff. Right. That was that was sort of the narrative that the shorthand that people were trying to put out there, especially while everything was going well and ESPN was firing on all cylinders. Uh, and it, it was never really the case, and it's not the case today. It's not the case that they're just movies today. They're a lot of things. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.